a special education teacher, an administrator, and a lawyer walk into a bar. And our conversations can get pretty lively. And now you'll join us while we talk all about special education and the public school system. I'm Robin Fabiano, a special education teacher and a building-based student services administrator. And I'm joined by Abby Hanscom, a district-level student services administrator, and Angela Smagula, a founding partner at Kahn and Smagula, specializing in educational law. We've been working together across multiple districts since 2009 and have lots of opinions about special education. In this podcast, we hope to share information, lessons learned, interviews with VIPs, and bring some humor to an otherwise serious topic. But before we get started, three disclaimers. One, the views shared on this podcast are our own and don't represent the views of the district in which we work. Two, Everyone might want Khan and Smagula as their attorneys, but Angela is not giving legal advice during this podcast. Three, although there are federal laws governing special education, we work in Massachusetts, a state that has extra protections, so some of which we speak about may not apply in your state. So let's get started. Hi, Angela. Hi, Abby. Hi, Robin. Hi, Robin. Hi, Abby. Angela, are you preserving your voice since you're going to be the star of this podcast? I mean, I feel like this may be turning listeners away, but, um, you know, I'll, I'll trudge through it. So this is our last podcast in a discipline series. And, um, we recognize that Angela has been the star of the past two. She'll be the star of tonight's podcast as well. And we feel like that's okay because discipline is a really tricky subject. It's super important for teachers and parents and administrators. And we rely heavily on our attorneys to help guide the process. And so you're going to learn a lot from her and we're excited um, to have her expertise. Um, I will say before we get into Angela's presentation, today there were two um, important rulings. And one was related to Britney Spears. Her dad was taken off her conservatorship. And, and um, the mask mandate, the, the protections for people with disabilities was upheld. And so in South I, Carolina, in, in South, South Carolina, in South Carolina. So I think we were really cutting edge by our two podcasts. And if you haven't listened to those two episodes, you should. Um, and I don't know. I don't think this is a fluke. I think that we're going to continue to predict outcomes and um, be really cutting edge. Agreed, agreed. (laughs) So we're going to roll into discipline. Tonight, we're talking about the big three actions or buckets that lead to long-term suspensions or potentially expulsion from school. Um, And so without further ado, Angela, take it away. So I think you guys are selling yourself a little bit short because I think you'll be able to uh, hopefully... Um, weigh in or ask questions that I'm not clear about so that it's not a monologue. But um, today's podcast is going to be a little Massachusetts-centric because it's going to talk about how we generate discipline in Massachusetts. Um, Last podcast, we talked about the, the federal overlay of extra due process for special education students. And this week, we're going to talk about all the discipline that's available in Massachusetts and identify from the beginning that it's all statutory. Uh, And that was a big change that occurred in 2014. I think I previewed this last time, 
but it's um, Massachusetts General Laws, Chapter 71. <clears throat> and uh, there's three statutes and they're, they're classically Massachusetts statutes because there's 37H, then 37H and a half. And then the new one as of 2014 is 37H and three quarters, literally like a fraction. Um, but we're going to talk about each of the three statutes and how they govern discipline and um, the regulations that connect with those three statutes and then the impact on students' rights in terms of due process and then students' rights in terms of access to their education and um, all that good stuff. Does that sound like that makes sense? It does. And I, I guess I just wanted to throw in, it's it's funny to me that Massachusetts had to go through this odyssey of these three different statutes. And I have a hunch that it was because there were disparate outcomes for groups of kids and there was some lobbying at some point compelling the state to clarify or codify some of these things into statutes, right? Like they didn't do it just to be annoying. They did it for some reason, I'm hoping. Yes, I mean, that's accurate. So these, the two original statutes are really a principal's right to um, suspend and specifically to expel. And that's 37H, which talks about uh, the big three weapons, drugs, and assault on staff. And then 37H and a half, which is if a student is charged with a felony, uh, and then there's specific pieces around uh, that that charge and what a principal can do as it relates to the general welfare of the school. But for decades and decades and decades, those are the two statutes. And then every other type of discipline was the wild, wild west. So any other violations of the handbook, or if you look the wrong way, um, administrators could do whatever they wanted to do in terms of um, suspensions from school and consequences for violations of the handbook. And <clears throat> what happened was there was a big lobby. Um, and the lobby was that there was such disparate impact across the Commonwealth from town to town. And they, Desi, I think, and also the legislature felt that it was just completely out of hand. So if you lived in Springfield and you got in a fight, you might be out of school for 10 days. But if you lived in Newton and you got in a fight, you may just get a talking to. And so what they found was that those irregularities were too extreme. And then, of course, you'll find in the data at that time that students of color and students with disabilities were were also getting more heavily disciplined, more regularly disciplined, and um, more seriously disciplined. And so that was also disparate across an internal district and also um, across the Commonwealth. So they wanted consistency um, and <clears throat> they really wanted to, and you'll see this in the regulations that go along with the third new bucket as of 2014, 37H and three quarters, the regulation is 603 CMR 53, and we'll put that in the in the notes. But you'll see that the emphasis was really on consequences being tied to the violation and putting the onus on principals. This is a very helpful podcast for you principals out there, because once again, you have the responsibility of the, um, the impact of this, which is that 
you they wanted principals to think creatively. In fact, there's a specific regulation that says it to think creatively about options other than out of school suspensions. And so that's what they wanted schools and districts to start doing. And so they legislated it really, because without that it wasn't it wasn't happening and it wasn't happening consistently. The other big change was the emphasis on due process and students' and parents' rights, and the idea that, I know we're only five minutes into the podcast, but I'm going to say it anyway, <laughs> that um, education is a right and not a privilege. And because of that, when you take it away, so when you take away someone's right, there has to be layers of due process upon it so that it's um, it's justified in light of the fact that you're losing a right. And so in doing so, what they really did was put a lot of due process and onus on the school and the administrators, such that if you're going to suspend a kid out of school, you don't just suspend the kid out of school. You have to follow a hearing process, which we're going to talk about. And the longer the suspension, the more the due process. So you'll see when we talk about um, the real emphasis on in-school suspension, that has very little due process. And that's because the legislature really wanted school districts to have kids get, if they were going to get a consequence for a violation of the handbook, uh, it should be an in-school suspension if possible. And the way they encourage that is to really make that the easy way to go. Quick and dirty, you can get it done. You don't have to have a hearing. It's the least amount of due process. And you can probably have the same, the same impact. Got it. That's very helpful. So we've touched on the names of the three statutes and the fractions that go along with them. And we should probably talk about each, briefly about each statute. So 37H is known as the big three, and that statute speaks to a principal being allowed to expel or in the alternative suspend for three different violations of a handbook. One is possession of a dangerous weapon. The second is possession of a controlled substance, which still includes um, cannabis or marijuana. And the third is an assault on, um, on staff. So a physical assault on a staff member um, or the threat of physical assault with the means to carry it out would, would qualify there, not between two students. So that statute lays out what a principal can do, and it has to be the principal. It can't be the designee. There's specifics in that statute about notice of a hearing in writing before the principal, allowing representation and um, presentation of evidence and calling witnesses. There's a right to appeal to the superintendent for the expulsion, but not the suspension, um, right to counsel and all that good stuff. So that's a big one. That's a big one. And you'll find that schools use that often as um, a little bit of sort of a carrot and stick. So if a kiddo possesses marijuana and is caught, they'll have a 37H hearing, which has the, the ability to expel on a first offense. But usually in most of the districts that I've worked for, um, that they use that and they suspend in, instead of expulsion and they create a track record so that if it's if there's gonna be multiple violations, multiple 37H hearings, eventually expulsion can occur. Um, but it is a serious consequence because there's no cap on the days of suspension. 
So depending on how serious the principal views the violation under those big three, the, the consequence can be quite, quite large. Does anyone have any questions about 37H? I have a question in general about handbooks because mm. this really speaks to making sure that your handbook is very clearly written with um, what the violations are. Is this something that is standard in every handbook in Massachusetts at this point? Or are you still going into districts and saying like, let me see your handbook and this is not clearly laid out? So I would say that it's a little, a, a bit of a mix, but in general, the statute also requires um, that districts have handbooks, grades nine to 12. I do see that most of the handbooks that I come across have 37H in them and have these other statutes in them. It's just a matter of whether they're precise enough in what the process should be and if they identify the specifics of the process as opposed to just one part of it. So that's where the, the, the devil is in the details. So Angela, I think there's like an urban myth out there that kids with disabilities can never be expelled. Are you saying that under 37H, a kid with a disability, if they were selling pot in school or in possession of pot, could be expelled? Um, yes. So I am saying that. And I will say, though, that uh, it's rare for expulsions for possession of pot under 37H, but it's definitely possible. And um, I have held many manifestation determinations, as we talked about last podcast, prior to a 37H hearing. Yep. Um, so you, those two are connected. Now, <clears throat> the most interesting thing about 37H, or one of the most interesting things about it, is that it doesn't cover um, intent to distribute, which is a more serious violation of the handbook and a more serious offense than possession, obviously. And so I've often had to come in at the 11th hour and say, oh, wait, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> we can't be having a 37H hearing for intent to distribute 17 mason jars and a scale and lots of dollars wrapped in rubber bands and I mean, just off the top of my head. But uh, so uh, those would be done under a different bucket, which is the 37H and three quarters bucket, which is a catch-all for everything else. But it also contains some pretty big ones. The interesting thing about that, without jumping ahead, is that 37H and three quarters has a cap. There is no expulsion under 37H and three quarters. And it has a cap on the number of days. So arguably for a more serious offense of uh, possession with intent to distribute, you might have a potential lesser consequence. Unless, of course, and this is, see how I'm tying this all together? Unless, of course, the possession with intent to distribute is prosecuted criminally. Oh, because then it's a felony. And we and go then back. You're under 37H and a half. Half. Which we're going to talk about go. now. Yeah. Got it. So that, I think that's a good segue into, into 37H and a half, um, which is the second big bucket for principles discipline and has the ability to expel. And 37H governs when a student is charged with a felony. And what that means is that a criminal complaint is issued, not that I think we're going to charge or I've heard they're going to charge or they may charge. They're, it's actually 
a criminal complaint is issued. Under, under that set of circumstances, a principal can have a hearing um, and may suspend that student for that felony charge, even if it has nothing to do, arguably, with school. If, if they determine that the students, and this is like words from the statute, the students' continued presence would have a substantial detrimental effect on the welfare of the school. So an example I use is a, if a kid steals a car, that's a felony. That's not necessarily grounds for a suspension from school, right? I'm not sure that the fact that the kid boosted a car is enough to have a substantial detrimental effect on the welfare of school, unless he steals a car from the school's parking lot, for example. But if you have a kid that breaks into the locker room and steals 10 iPhones, enough to to be charged as a felony, there the principal could determine that that student has a substantial detriment on the effect of the welfare of the school because they're breaking the law and violating um, the norms in school. But that's a second prong of that statute that when you're figuring out whether you're going to suspend a kid for being charged with a felony, that you you must do that analysis. And then you have the right to appeal on a suspension to the superintendent. Um, and usually what happens under 37H and a half is if they believe that the student with the felony charge, their continued presence would have a substantial detrimental effect on the welfare of the school, they suspend pending the outcome of the felony. So that exists for as long as the felony exists. And then if they're convicted or they admit to sufficient facts, um, which is interesting, um, then the principal can have a hearing and can expel them. They still have to do the substantial detriment analysis. And there's also a right to appeal the expulsion. So we have so many questions about all of that. So, all right, Robin, do you want to go first? Do you want me to ask my first question? You can go first. All right. So if I was the parent of a kid who got charged with a felony, I would not tell the school. I would keep that a secret. And so I'm curious, how do schools become aware of felonies and what is the mechanism for that? And is there a rule about that? Or like, do people just get lucky and find out? Like, how does that work? So if, if it's like the boosting the car example and not the committing the felony in the school example, then it can occur through the MOU between the police department and the school district of sharing of information of, um, you know, possible violations that could impact the school, um, or they can hear about it, otherwise hear about it, and then do a process. There's no requirement that if, you know, I'm a student and I'm charged with a felony, I have to go tell the school. But once the school learns about it, they would do this analysis and then make a determination, and the law allows that sort of reach by the by the principal. I think that's really related to what we talked about um, two podcasts ago, because MOUs, memorandums of understanding, are linked to SROs, school resource officers. And I know that there's been a lot of um, revision of these relationship documents between police, um, state police departments and schools in Massachusetts, certainly lately, to either limit or further define the nature of that information sharing. And I'm assuming that's all related to what we talked about originally in terms of not 
setting kids up for disaster, but sharing information when safety is at stake, something like that, right? Agreed. Yep, that's right. So that's 37H and a half. Um, Now, the interesting thing about both of these statutes is that the next bucket, the third bucket, 37H and three quarters and the companion regulations also contained some language that impacted these two statutes with regard to the right to continuing your education. So prior to 2014, if you were expelled, you were expelled and there was no responsibility to educate um, a, a regular ed student if they were expelled. Now, the idea that um, prior to this, if you were suspended and you were a special ed student, you would be having access to your education under the IDEA. But after 2014, it didn't matter whether you're a special ed student or a regular ed student. If you are out of school, you have the right to continue your education. And that's not just access like there's a packet of work for you at the desk. If your mom or dad comes and gets it, great. If they don't, tough shit. It's a proactive requirement on the district to provide um, education, allow them to make up work, allow them to take tests. Um, and that shifted also the um, emphasis on expulsion under 37H and 37H and a half because you still own the kid right? You always own the kid regardless. That was really hard for people. I remember when that came through and I remember you speaking in like slow, calm sentences to very agitated (laughs) administrators and probably me too at certain points. But this whole idea that a student could do something really troubling and not go away was really hard for staff, that the student was still the school district's responsibility and would potentially be coming back to the same school was really challenging. And I I, I want to just take a second to kind of think about that a little bit with you, because part of my job is organizing the IAES options. And I was hoping you would talk about interim alternative educational settings uh, in this conversation. But Often we are in moments where we're identifying options for kids to continue their education where the school system is actually paying more money in tuition and transportation and other things to encourage the students' education. And that feels very confusing to people in the school setting that they left behind and are coming back to. So I don't know if you want to explicate the IAESs of the world, but we do that. Why don't you you why don't you do that a little bit, Abby, um, so that people's ears aren't bleeding from my voice, and then that will help tie directly into um, when we talk about short and long term suspensions under thirty seven H and three quarters and the requirements to educate. So very briefly, when we have a student where we have a a suspension and it's significant, we are looking to provide a variety of options for. Um, parents usually to choose from to continue that kid's education. So sometimes we're offering two things or maybe three things. Frequently we're offering um, potentially tutoring, um, but then additionally we're uh, we're exploring these programs that are often run by our in Massachusetts our educational collaboratives that will offer 
uh, midterm instruction for students for a full day uh, in an alternative setting. And the idea is it's an interim, meaning short-term alternative educational setting so that all of the students' special education services are being provided. So the district's meeting its IDA responsibilities. But often the kids are sometimes um, having like an evaluation uh, maybe they're being um, identified if there's a new disability or an additional area of concern. Um, and often we're providing supportive counseling to kids to kind of process what's happened and what's happening to them maybe while they're in a court process or in some other kind of consequencing process. And that has, over the years, you know, become clearer to me and I can do it more efficiently now. But I think in the beginning it was very confusing to staff administrators and super confusing to parents. Like, where is my kid going and why are you offering me this? And um, my kid isn't like those kids that are there, except of course, maybe they are because the, the program is set up for kids in their situation. So it's, there's a lot of layers to IAESs and usually it has to be done pretty quickly. And that's challenging for families too, I think. So it's pretty loaded. So my little guy got suspended <laughs> and um, a long-term suspension or was expelled. I have two questions. The first one is, could I just like go and enroll him in a private school? And do I have to tell them that he got expelled? And two, if my child had a long-term suspension, I might say like, F you district, my kid's not coming back because he's never going to have a fair shot anyway. I'm going to put him in a different school program. And then the child actually never serves their suspension, right? And can just roll into another school. Has that happened? And what are your thoughts on that? So a parent can withdraw a student at any time. I mean, the suspension is still on their record. But in which record would that go into? Would that be in their CUM folder? If I just withdrew my child and then enrolled in another, in a private school, and they said, why did you enroll? And I said, oh, the things weren't just working out that great at the other well, place. Like what's the, well, what is the private, responsibility private school, to share that information with the next school? I mean, that's your responsibility, really, especially when you're entering into private school. A lot of kids end up doing that for whatever reason. I mean, uh, the other big change was that when you are expelled from school, you are still being educated by that school if you want to be. If you then move to a different district, that new district has to put you in their school. Or if they're concerned about the basis of the expulsion that they've learned about from the school that sent the records, or you told them about, they can figure out an alternate setting in the new district for them. But you still have to take them. So it used to be in the old days, you got expelled and you were just like bounced around and you could never get in anywhere because district would say like, oh, well, you were expelled from from Brookline, I don't have to teach you, I don't have to take you in Newton, but now you do. Now the the receiving district has the ability to um, decide what the best placement may be on by the fact that they're expelled, right? Um, but they have to educate them. So um, and then what was the first part of your question, Robin? How do people know? Remember how it used to be on a transcript? It would say like suspension zero. And I don't think that's on there anymore. But I do think when you apply to college, some colleges still ask, have you ever been suspended? And if you lie, it can invalidate your financial aid package if they were to find out about it. So I think there are other kinds of consequences, but not 
immediate in the public school context? Yeah, I mean, most most public school high schools say that they rely on the student to answer that question honestly on the Common App. And then if they get a follow-up question from the school, they're going to be honest about it. Um, but both private schools and public schools in general have that, are transparent about that rule that they expect the students to be honest about it. Um, some private schools have language in their handbooks that say if the consequence, if the violation or the the discipline comes after the application has been filed, that they and it's serious enough that they will share it with um, the school. And then schools, of course, reserve the right to cancel their acceptance based on students not being truthful, et cetera. That's why the um, appeals of suspensions in general are so vibrant because it's really a record issue um, because you're always serving your suspension during the pendency of any appeal. So if and when you, you win the appeal, if it's a long-term suspension, you could shorten it. But if it's a short-term suspension and you win the appeal, the, the, the result is usually just a scrubbing of the record, which is really what many parents want to begin with. Even this example of, um, this is unrelated to discipline, the statutes, but even that example that we were talking about in the previous podcast in Somerville, where the five-year-old was reported to the police and that litigation is happening. If you look at those papers carefully, the parents want to see the police report because they want it to be gone. They want it to not be in his record at the police department. And they want, to, they want it so that his record doesn't follow him. Now, Abby and I have dealt with you know, parents getting their knickers in a twist about consequences or suspensions being in the file or um, substantiated bullying allegations for elementary age students and middle school students. And those records don't travel up the food chain. I mean, administrators talk and they're aware of certain situations that they need to be aware of. But sometimes we have people saying, when, when Johnny leaves fifth grade, he needs to have a clean slate. It's like, yeah, Johnny will have a clean slate. Don't worry. It's great. So those consequences don't necessarily live in the file forever, especially at a younger age. Um, so what are some of the alternatives to um, expulsion and long-term suspensions? Like what are the creative options that either you recommend or Abby, you've considered and proposed? Well, we had a really good one that I think you probably proposed a couple of years ago <laughs> where we had a student um, pull the fire alarm. Remember that? And it evacuated the whole building and there were kids in a substantially separate program who had sensory issues and who were negatively impacted for hours and hours and hours after that event by the dysregulation that the noise and the chaos caused. And there are many people who wanted to suspend the kid who pulled the fire alarm. And somebody came up with this great idea of saying, like, why don't you stay in school and volunteer, voluntold tier in the classroom and get to know some new people in your world and have some empathy for what me. your actions caused? That was you. So do you want to say anything more about that? Because I thought that was brilliant. This was a student who probably just didn't know the impact that that fire drill had because um, he had 
some through friendships, already some previous experiences with kids with severe disabilities. And once he realized the impact felt terrible. And so I knew that the volunteering would be much more um, impactful and meaningful than sitting in an in-school suspension doing work. That's the main idea. Find a consequence that's meaningful. Right. And so, I mean, that's actually embedded directly in the regulation for for the the third bucket that we're going to talk about, 37H and three quarters, but under the under the specific regulation 53.05, it's called alternatives to suspension. And it says that the principal shall exercise discretion in deciding the consequence for the offense. And then in parentheses, it says community service, restorative justice, after school and weekend options, in-school losses of privileges or consequences prior in italics to resorting to removal from school. Then it says the principal always has the right to separate um, 37H and three quarters procedures to exclude the student from extracurricular and school sponsored activities. So you don't even have to go through the due process uh, piece that we're gonna talk about. So like we can talk about some of these, you know, community service, restorative justice, um, Saturday school, right? Like, Like breakfast club, right? And I think it depends on on the community. Like I was just talking to a client the other day where I was doing a refresher on, on 37H and three quarters and the due process piece. And the principal there said, um, oh, yeah, you know, we just had a bunch of short-term suspension hearings where the results were cleaning the hallways in the school. And that was actually suggested by the parents as opposed to sending them home from school um, was to have them come and work after school um, and cleaning the building. And that's what they did. And, you know, they said like, is that okay? And I was like, yes, of course it's more than okay. Now, depending on the community, you can get some pushback on that. You can get some pushback on Saturday school because God forbid it conflicts with, with club sports and all that good stuff. But thinking outside the box, especially when you can collaborate with parents on those pieces, um, can be um, definitely more impactful on the kids who might have gone home and just played PS4 all day, right? As opposed to having to do something that really reminds them why they shouldn't have violated the handbook. Um, So, and then of course, the in-school loss of privileges, you can just take that stuff away. The Canopy Lake trip park trip you can take away, prom you can take away if we ever have prom again, right? So all of those things you can take away once you've established there's been a violation of the handbook that you don't have to go through that whole process. Or you could go through the whole process and then determine a consequence that's not an out-of-school suspension. That's always that's always an option as well. So Robin, you are ahead of your time as usual um, with your idea. Um, and I think that that's what the regulation and the and the law was hoping for. Um, I think this is a good place to pivot to the last bucket, which is the 37H and three quarters, which is everything else. So any other violation of the handbook falls under this, this bucket, this three, 37H and three quarters. And this is where the bulk of the, of the change came um, in terms of how um, school administrators were processing violations of the handbook. And so there's three categories within 37H and three quarters, in-school suspension, which you've heard me chirp on about, um, short-term suspensions, which is one to 10 days out of school, 
and long-term suspensions, which is 11 to 90 days out of school with a 90-day cap. So there's no expulsion for pretty serious violations of the handbook processed under 37H and three quarters. And the number of days is important. So we, we've talked through the podcast about sort of the magic of 10 days as it relates to a lot of different things. And here, um, the accumulation of 10 days of suspension, either individually or cumulatively, um, within a school year, every school year stands alone. There's no carryover, um, by the way, triggers the protections of a long-term suspension. So what does that mean? That means that if you get to day 11 of an in-school suspension and you've done a really great job, this kid's been a lot in, tr- been in a lot of trouble, but you've been in school suspending them, but they just can't seem to stay out of trouble and they're in trouble again and you're gonna in-school suspend them then it's an 11th or 12th day, you're in long-term suspension land, which is the which is the part of the statute that has the most due process, which we're going to quickly talk about. So again, the, the message here from the legislature is um, you don't want to be over-disciplining a kid, right? Even 11 days of in-school suspension sounds like too much, right? And it sounds like too much, so they're going to make you go through this very arduous due process, hearing process, even to in-school suspend a kid. So what that does is that helps districts be more, more judicious in when they're suspending a kid and throwing a book at them. So that was the most significant change was that there are these layers of due process um, piled upon um, the the different uh, level of suspension that you're thinking about using. And both students and parents have those due process rights, and it runs along a continuum. So you have in-school suspension, which has the least amount of due process. There's You think there's been a violation of the handbook. You do an investigation. You meet with the student. There's no hearing. You don't have to call the parents. The student has the opportunity to tell their side of the story. You determine if there's been a violation of the handbook. You assign an in-school suspension, and then you inform the parents in writing. So that's the that's easy peasy, right? Compared to short-term suspension, where you have to have a hearing, not a meeting, where the parents and students have to be present. They have the opportunity to share mitigating factors about the alleged violation of the handbook, and you have to have this hearing from the school side before you. Im- implement any discipline before you decide what the discipline may be and before you remove them. So that was a massive seismic shift that it took a long time to get teachers on board with because now you a couple of days might pass before you have a hearing and determine the suspension. Yes. What 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 do we think about that? While you're waiting for the hearing, is the student just back in class? And back in the school, or can you do in-school suspension upon waiting for um, the hearing? That's a great question. And you can do an in-school suspension while you're waiting for the hearing if it's going to take a number of days to get organized. However, those days count. So when you're in-school suspending pending the the hearing, then you're going to count those days and you may end up with the hearing with no additional consequence. And you can never say to the parent, your child can't come to school while we wait to schedule this. You cannot. 
Nor can you and therapeutically dismiss them because that doesn't exist either. Yeah. So if a parent says, you know what, I'm not even going to send my kid back until we figure this out. That could be their choice, but you always want to say that a child has a right to come to school. We have an obligation right. to educate them. This is what we can do in the meantime. Correct. And sometimes with long-term suspension here, like with short-term suspension hearings, like districts get used to doing them over the phone, which is permitted. And there's not a lot of loss of time with long-term suspension hearings, um, which require more due process or the 37H or 37H and a half hearings. Sometimes it takes a while to schedule those and you're not supposed to be out of school before that. So oftentimes like you can do sort of a hybrid piece as well. Like if the violation, if let's say you're having a 37H hearing for possession of marijuana, but the student also had, you know, vaping paraphernalia, you can in school suspend for the vaping paraphernalia, right? Which kind of solves your problem and then have the 37H hearing for the other piece. You can't double dip though. You can't do it twice, which is why if you in-school suspend pending a hearing, those days have to count and you still have to go through the process of determining if there's been a violation of the handbook. And I think that's a big idea too, just to say that it's not a preconceived thing with a fake meeting where you just say what you were going to say, right? Like the reality is it's a real hearing because a student can bring like character witnesses and mitigating information and all of this stuff. Right. And I guess that was a question I had is principals have to indicate in their letter that they're contemplating a long-term suspension, but it may never come to pass. Right. Right. So you have to, so you, you walk this fine line of putting a family on notice of the type of hearing they're having and that the type of potential consequence there may be. But when you're inviting a family to a short-term suspension hearing, you're saying we're having a short-term suspension hearing because we think there's been a violation of the handbook that could result in a consequence up to 10 days of suspension. But you haven't decided. You're not saying it will be three days. It will be five days. You, you can't decide that till after, after the hearing. And at a short-term suspension hearing, you're having a hearing both for a short-term suspension, which is one to 10 days out or a long-term suspension hearing, but of course with a long-term suspension hearing, which is 10 to 40, 10 to 90 days out, there's much more process identified in the regulations and the statute. So you have the right to review the student's records and any documents the school administrator is gonna use in the hearing. So if the school administrator is gonna read an incident report, they have to give that to the family. Um, it identifies the right to an attorney at the family's expense. So it encourages people to lawyer up, which I love, but a lot of places don't. Um, the right to bring witnesses, the right to cross-examine school witnesses, the right to request an audio recording. This is all identified in the, in the statute. So, I mean, this just goes to show you that it's telling all the people participating that this is a big, big deal. And often it does take longer to schedule those. And so you have to be sort of thoughtful about that. Can you give your um, top three tips you would give a principal as they're documenting these or writing these letters? So my top three tips for them, Robin, would be to make sure that you identify the violation of the handbook. Oftentimes, I'll be in the throes of getting the story or the conversation about what happened and what they want to do and what they're going to do. And we still haven't identified what the violation of the handbook is. 
And that requires going into the handbook and actually looking and seeing that you're super mad that X happened, but is X a violation of the handbook? So you need to include that in in your documents. Um, And you need to be pretty specific according to the law and as best practice about um, what the violation is and why you believe that it's potentially a violation so that the family's on notice of what the student's being alleged to have done so that they can come into the hearing and have an opportunity to provide mitigating factors. And they actually say that in the, in the regulation, that that's their right to come in and, and provide you know, mitigation or an, or an explanation. I'm going to skip my second tip. I'll come back to it. My third tip is that all letters should be written such that a third party can read and understand what happened what the evidence is and why the discipline was given. So that's a tip for the letter that comes out that generates the discipline. Anyone should be able to pick that letter up and read it and understand what happened and why it happened and why you you consequence them. So you can't just say, I had a hearing, I said this happened, Susie said it didn't happen, and I gave them a 10-day suspension. You need to demonstrate that you, A, listened to the student and the parent, and you took into account what they said, or you heard it and you didn't take it into account and why. And then what the evidence is that you heard that led you to believe that there was a violation and that uh, the following consequence was appropriate. That's my third tip. My second tip is that you want to make sure in, in the letters that you remind students and, and families about a right to appeal if it exists. Now, a right to appeal for long-term suspension is statutory, so that's required. There is no statutory right to appeal for in-school suspensions or short-term suspensions under 37H and three quarters. And so districts can decide whether they're going to allow for that. I have districts that fall all the way across the map. No appeal for in-school suspension, some appeal for short-term suspension, no appeal for anything but long-term suspension. But you need to put everyone on notice of that right. And if you have it in the handbook, you have to give it. And then, of course, the other piece we talked about is the right to education. Because again, the onus is on the school district to be providing that. And if you're out of school for more than 10 days, under 37H and three quarters, this is what Abby was previewing, the districts are required to provide a brick and mortar alternative, i.e. they have to go somewhere for school and they can't be home necessarily. And they have to provide at least two options. Now, one of those options can be in-home tutoring or online school. So that is in the home, I guess. But you have to give a choice. They have to have a choice. So they have to have a document that exists that says, here are the choices that we have for kids that we're suspending out of school for more than for more than 10 days. Um, so my second tip is that make sure that you include all of those pieces along the way so people don't um, misunderstand that they still have a right to an education no matter what happens. I think that what I would say at this point is that you know, I've laid out hopefully clearly sort of what the three the three statutes are that govern discipline. And as um, onerous and complicated as it seems, it's helpful to have a roadmap. And really the regs and, and districts handbooks provide a, a, a really nice roadmap that allows everyone to be at the table and gives school districts the opportunity to follow their process. It gives families and students the opportunity to have their rights, um, you know, not trampled on. 
and also like speaks to the fact that at the end of the day, um, the goal is for kids to learn from mistakes, right? Kids are going to make mistakes. Um, handbooks are going to be violated. And um, at the end of the day, we're still educational institutions at writ large. So discipline is a part of school, but it shouldn't be the prime mover, right, Abby? Absolutely. And I think for our podcast, and when we think of this three like podcast series, the reality is that that goes all the way back to the first conversation we had, that the philosophy has shifted nationally about what the point of school discipline is. And all of these steps and rules and everything are really a reflection of that larger philosophical um, change. And I think overall, it's meant to protect kids, particularly kids who are vulnerable and, uh, and give parents, particularly parents who maybe don't have access to lawyers on speed dial, right? Like a, a structure that they can hold on to. So I, I'm glad we talked about it in a lot of length. And my hope is that no matter what job you have, that you're listening to this from the vantage point you have, um, there's some good information in there to help protect kids. And I will say that we are taking questions through our email. Um, so make sure you listen all the way to the end of the podcast and you'll hear our email. And if you have any questions or you're interested in some follow-up podcasts on any topic, feel free to reach out. Um, and we'll be back again next week. And thanks, Abby and Angela. Thanks. I, I know this was a heavy hit on you for the last three podcasts and we appreciate it. I am so happy. As you can tell, I'm so happy to talk about it, but it'll be nice to take a little breather. <laughs> All right. Good night. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. If you have any questions, you can reach us at astalpodcast at gmail.com.